Okay, hopefully you have your copy of God's Word. Uh, If you could, please open up to the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to continue in chapter 4. And we're going to pick up in verse 6. Would ask that you continue to bear with me. I'm still getting over this cold, and uh, my voice is back, but I may occasionally have to clear my throat or cough. Um, Travel through the family, and uh, of course, it it always hits every member. So y'all know how that is. So (coughs) hopefully I'll make it through tonight okay. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 6. We've been studying through the book of 1 Timothy, and we've kind of approached into chapter 4, the end of chapter 3, beginning in chapter 4, this idea that the church is a fortress of the truth. And that's really, I think, a good summary of everything in 1 Timothy so far. Paul is charging Timothy with protecting the church's doctrine and devotion and equipping the church to be a pillar for the truth. That's really everything that's happened in the first part of the letter. And we see that kind of formalized here at the beginning, at the end of chapter 3 and at the beginning of chapter 4, this idea that he hopes to come soon, but he's written certain things so that we know how we ought to operate in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the church structure, we looked at these two biblical offices of overseer and deacon. And because these offices are charged with ordering the church and guiding the church, it matters how we handle these offices. We need to take the qualifications seriously, and we need to try to be as biblical as we can in those things. So now Paul is elaborating on why these instructions are important. Last week we looked at the consequences of abandoning the truth, the things that can come with that. And so this week, as we, as we continue in chapter 4, we're going to look at the positive Impact of Paul's instructions to the church. Instead of, here's what happens if you don't protect the truth. Today we're going to look at, here's what happens as you do protect the truth and as you guide your life accordingly. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 6 through 10 for us. You can follow along. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrines you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who... Who believe. So looking back at verse 6, kind of take this one to two verses at a time. If you put these things before the brothers. So the first thing we should ask is, what are these things? What is he talking about here? I think that the things here in verse 6 are the same things. If you look back in chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you. So that if I delay, you know how the household of God ought to operate. So there, these things are what Paul wrote that he felt like couldn't wait until he came back in person. That's all the instructions before that point in the letter. He says, everything I'm writing to you, all these things are written because if I delay, you need to know this now. And I think that these things here is probably the exact same as these things 
there. But I think you can also apply it to everything after this in the book as well. I think we could say everything in the book of 1 Timothy is the things that he's talking about. This phrase comes up seven times in this book, more than any other letter he ever wrote. He references these things, these things, these things. There's this importance in the things that he's writing there. I don't think Paul expected us to pay really close attention to the first part of the book, but then ignore the rest of the book. So he's saying these things, if you put these things before the brothers, it's everything that we have here. So what about these things? If you put these things before the brothers, Timothy's responsibility as a pastor of the church is to take the truth of God and to put it before believers. Sometimes we get this out of line and you see pastors who take this responsibility and instead of putting the things of God before believers, they absorb the word themselves, come up with something out of that and then present what they have developed afterwards. Faithful preaching, expositional preaching is what it's called, is the idea of exposing the text of Scripture. You have other types of preaching where their, their goal is not to expose the text of Scripture, but to search the Scripture for something that matches what they want to teach and then provide it. But expositional preaching, what I try to do for you all every time that I preach, is taking the verses of Scripture and just exposing the meanings. We're looking at the different words and saying, well, why did God put that word in? Why didn't he put another word? Well, why did God include three different items in this sentence? Well, why didn't God include this this way? It's to put forth the meaning of the scriptures. So he says, if, Timothy, you put these things before the brothers, then you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So a pastor is a good servant of Christ Jesus if he takes God's word and puts it before the church. Now, how is it that he's able to do so? Keep reading. It's because, at the end of verse 6 here, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. The word trained here is not the same word as train later in this passage. So later in this passage, this comes up, you see here in verse 7, rather train yourself for godliness. And then here in verse 8, for while bodily training is a value. Um, that's not the same word here as train. It's two different words in the Greek. This first word here is the idea of education, and it's also used to describe nourishment. And I'll tell you where else this is used in Scripture to help kind of put it in perspective. There's a related form of this word that's used in Luke 4, 16. It's talking about Jesus. Here's the verse. And he came to Nazareth where he had been Brought up. That's the word there, translated brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So the word that we see here is train, to be trained in the words of the faith, is not just like physical training type of training. It's the idea of a proper diet and nutrition that matures someone from childhood to adulthood. It's almost like a proper diet. Like training your body for growth by giving it what it needs. So what is he nourished by? It says the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Timothy is only able to serve God as he ought to serve him 
because he has a healthy diet of God's word. As he consumes the word, he digests it and it strengthens his spiritual muscles, allowing him to do spiritual lifting that he might not otherwise be able to do. Without that diet of God's word, there are certain things spiritually that we're just not going to be equipped to handle. And we think, ah, I'll make it, it'll be okay. And we end up straining something or pulling something. If you look a little more closely at this verse, I think there's a relationship between all these phrases that kind of mimics this analogy that I've used of a diet. The three phrases I want to look at is words of the faith, good doctrine that you have followed. So first, words of the faith. It says being trained with what? In the words of the faith. This is the general truth of the gospel. This is what separates a Christian from a non-Christian. The general teachings of the faith. What it is to follow Christ versus not following Christ. This can be thought of as just general Bible knowledge. So trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. So after taking in the general truths of the gospel, what happens is you start to develop good doctrine. This is when you take this general Bible knowledge and you begin to formulate in your mind a specific understanding about God, man, creation, and sin. I did some reading online every year. I think it's the American Bible Society possibly is who puts it out. They put a state of the Bible address every year. And you can go and look at different statistics among Americans and Christians, their engagement with the Bible, and, and all these really cool stats. And it's all available for free online. So you can go and look it up. Well, I got to doing some research and followed some different articles. And there was another article that talked about how among Christians, people who profess to be Christian, it gives you the percentage who read scriptures. And then one of the stats that I saw that I didn't believe until I saw it in multiple places was among people who profess to be Christian. Only one in ten of those people, when given a survey, it was like ten questions, a ten-question survey. Only one in ten of those people could be described as having a biblical worldview. What this means is a biblical worldview is an understanding of the world based on how Scripture presents it. So an example would be, where do you think evil comes from? A biblical worldview would say, well, it comes from sin. In the garden, that's where evil comes from. That's where cancer comes from. That's why we get sickness. In a non-biblical worldview, you may have a completely different answer to that. Some of these questions were, you know, do you believe that the Bible is God's word? Do you believe that Jesus resurrected? Simple questions that we would think, oh, well, every Christian's going to agree with those things. But apparently only 10% did. And so I think what this exposes in us is that we approach the words of the faith, the general truths... Irregularly, And because we do that, we can't formulate these good doctrines because we're not filling our mind enough to be able to form an opinion on those things. That's this good doctrine. These more specific understandings. To give you an example of this, we've talked about the Trinity. We've talked about the hypostatic union. But you are never going to read either of those words in Scripture. Instead, as you read the Bible... You'll come to know, well, there's only one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. They're distinct persons. And the Son, whose name is Jesus, has a divine nature and a human nature, but they both exist in one man, Jesus. We come to know that through reading the Bible. You may not be able to say, oh, that's the doctrine of the hypostatic union. 
But that's what you believe. That's good doctrine. How does that develop? Not from reading a systematic theology book, though some of you may be. Just from our general exploration of the Bible. We read about Jesus and we say, wow, Jesus was a man. He grew in stature and in wisdom. He got hungry. He slept. But then we also see, well, Jesus is God. He walked on water. I never seen anybody do that. We come to this as we read through the scriptures. So these general truths of the gospel come first. And then these good doctrines are formed. And as we complete the first leg, the second leg begins to be completed. Then we have this third one that you have followed. This is the action that comes from our good doctrine. It is not enough to approach the general truths of the gospel and then to develop proper understandings of God and then to do nothing. There's a following that takes place after that. Your understanding of God should affect how you live, what you choose to do and think about. And this is what Timothy did. So to go back to our analogy with our diets, food is consumed. That's the word of the faith. The food is digested and broken down so that specific nutrients can help us. That's the good doctrine. And then those nutrients provide our body's energy that we need in order to perform physical tasks. And that's the following. So a proper diet is the fuel of a healthy spiritual life. If you want a healthy spiritual life, you'll have a healthy diet of God's word. If you don't have a healthy diet of God's word, you won't have that healthy spiritual life. Things will be out of proportion. You will have struggles maybe that other people don't have as much. Maybe you'll have struggles that people can relate with. That's why we have the warning here in the next verse. Verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Because a proper diet is necessary for the proper energy that we need to act, we must stay away from irreverent, silly myths. In those days, these myths could include something like, oh, well, Jesus didn't really come in the flesh because all flesh is evil. So he looked like a physical person, but he was really a spirit the whole time. So when he died, his body didn't actually die, which explains how he could come back to life. That was one of these theories that went wild. Or these silly myths that, oh, well, you know, the disciples, they stole the body out of the tomb. And that's why the body's not in the tomb. Or, oh, well, the Messiah didn't really die on the cross. He just looked dead, and, and then somehow they helped him get better again, and that's how he came back from the dead. Today, these myths might include something else, like the hallucination theory of the resurrection. It's people that teach, oh, well, we think that it was just a hallucination. The disciples wanted Jesus to be alive. They staked their life on it. So when he died, they just had a mental snap. And they believed, they truly believed, they saw the risen Jesus, but, but they didn't. To which we get to respond, they all had the exact same hallucination at the exact same time. 
These myths still exist today. It could be any number of ideas. How do we recognize them? If you think back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, Paul gives this instruction to Timothy. He says, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Pay attention to this part, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So the contrast is between speculative information and stewarded information. The former speculative information is generated by us in our imagination and our creativity. We reason in our own minds and we speculate as to how things could possibly happen. And it creates these myths. It's not based on discovery or revelation. It's just based on our reasoning. We speculate. Could be right, could be wrong. The latter, the stewarded information, is generated by something outside of ourselves. The information is already there. We've discovered it, and then as a steward of that information, we deliver it to other people. You see the difference there? So this stewarded information, that's what we are charged to cling to. This is the truth of the gospel as it's revealed in Scripture. And it's not based on our imagination. It's not based on our creativity. God has revealed to us, so we take and share. And I'm going to give you an example of this. Think about the difference between fiction and nonfiction. Nonfiction doesn't necessarily rely on the creativity of the person writing it. The strength of nonfiction is in the author's grasp of the truth and then his or her ability to communicate that in a written form. But fiction really relies heavily on imagination. Stacy has been reading through. We are over at uh, Rodney and Gail's place, and they've got this wall in there, and it's like a bookshelf wall. And you look at it, and there's all these books lined up. And then you go to the other side, and the other side is also lined with books. So Rodney, big reader, and Stacy is also a big reader. So she's read a lot of different books. Well, she saw some James Patterson books in there, and she thought, oh, you know, I've always heard really – I want to try to read one of those. So she read one of the Alex Cross books. She has blown through – and Rodney, I think she's read some of yours also instead of reading it from the library. Thank you. Um, she has read through countless – and just pours through them. I'm like, how can you just read the same idea over and over again and not get tired? It's like, it's really good. Each one is just – he's just a great writer. And we have some of those people that are just terrific writers. The way that they think, you just open up and it just captures you and you just want to read. That is based on this ability to be creative. And I'm going to give you a real world example of this. Fiction and nonfiction. There's this book that was written several, several years ago called The Shack. How many of you ever heard of this book, The Shack? Okay. Sold over 23, sold well over 20 million copies. Extremely impressive. Was made into a movie. So I'm going to compare the shack and the scriptures right now. And you'll see why here in just a second I chose to do this. This is a book of fiction. It's a fiction book. It's following the story of this guy, Mac, who suffers this tremendous tragedy. And so he ends up encountering God. And the author of this book portrays God in a certain way. And Mac interacts with the father and then interacts with the son and interacts with the spirit 
as they kind of manifest themselves to him to teach him about how to cope with this tragedy and why there's evil and suffering in the world. It's basically the premise of the book. Wildly popular and has, has helped a lot of people to grapple with this idea of sin and suffering and evil, but then God existing in the world at the same time and being able to, to wrestle with that. It's been helpful for a lot of people. Okay. Well, this book is written in fiction form, and so it's easy to read. You open it up, and it, it's pleasing to go through and read from a literary perspective. However, though this book is popular and easy to read, the theology that it promotes is shaky at best and dangerous at the worst. This author, through this book, hints at this teaching called universalism. Here's what universalism teaches. God saves everybody. His love is so good, no one will pay for their sin because it's already been paid for on the cross. So we will all go to heaven. That's how big God's love is. And there were several critiques that came out. I'm going to read a line from the book. This is from Papa, who is God the Father in the book. It's called Papa. Says, I'm not who you think I am, Mackenzie. I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is its own punishment devouring from the inside. It is not my purpose to punish. It is my joy to cure. So some critiques of the book came out, and a lot of people really attacked this. And then there's some people that came out and said, well, I think you're being kind of harsh. I think the point he was making was this. And they argued it's kind of unclear. It's, it's not fair to just jump on him and say, heretic because of this. We, we could see where maybe he just made a mistake. So later, Paul Young wrote another book called Lies We Believe About God. And in this book, guess what happens? He unpacks and says, I want to help explain the theology behind the shack. And you know what this book teaches? Universalism. He's a universalist. Nobody will go to hell. He said, I'll clarify for you. So we read this book, The Shack, and it was revolutionary for a lot of people. And I'll be honest, I read it as a young, young Christian, and I thought, this is mind-blowing. It makes sense to think about God this way. I get it. And what I didn't realize then that I realize now is what was so attractive to me was it made sense in my mind because it came from another man's mind. He said, well, let me try to reason on how I think this might could fit together and speculate it and fit it all together. And I thought... This is a great book. Everybody should read this book. I was a huge advocate of it. But then as you dive in and and develop and grow and learn, obviously my mind is tremendously changed. But it wasn't when I read it. And a lot of people grab a book like this and grab a hold and say, this is terrific. And what it's doing is it's injecting poison into us that will later bear fruit that we don't want it to bear. So this is the danger behind this myths and speculation. It's not to say that there aren't helpful things that can come from that book, but it's the same danger we looked at last week. The worst, the most dangerous lie is the lie that's hidden in a bed of truth. And when you let your guard down, that's when it strikes. So that's why we devote ourselves, we formulate this diet. It's okay to do extra reading outside the Bible. Highly recommend it. But our main diet should be the Bible. This should be the primary source of our intake. John Piper was answering a question someone 
called in on a podcast, I think, and they said, if I had an hour to do my quiet time and devotion time, what percentage of that time should I devote to reading scripture versus reading um, extra biblical Christian material, some kind of a spiritual book? And Piper's answer, I believe, was 45. If you have an hour, I would read 45 minutes out of the Bible and then 15 minutes in another book about the Bible or about Christianity. He said maybe 40-20, probably 45-15. And that blew me away. I thought, man, 45 minutes of just reading the Bible and then only 15 minutes of getting to read this extra material. But I think he's right on the money. This needs to be the primary source of our nutrients. So the warning here is to have nothing to do with these myths. It will poison you. The truth that you absorb about God needs to come directly from his word or based on it as someone uh, teaches it. So he says, avoid these, have nothing to do with them. Rather, in verse 7, train yourself for godliness. So the word train here is different than the first. This Greek word is gymnazo, which is where we get the word gymnasium. So the picture of this word is like you're training, you're hot, you're sweaty, you're stinky. You just put in a long workout and you feel like, what have I accomplished? And you're worn out. That is what we do as Christians. This is the training that we need to undergo to pursue godliness. The NASB translates the word discipline, which I think is a more helpful translation of the word based on what it means. It communicates the idea of a regimented, hard workout that requires discipline. And this is a scary word for Christians. We don't want to be legalistic, so we stick away from a word such as discipline. But if it's good enough for the Bible, it's good enough for me. Discipline yourself for godliness. That's the instruction. We discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Godliness is not created in a vacuum. It's the result of disciplined, intentional interaction with God through the spiritual disciplines. After we finish our study in the book of 1 Timothy, kind of flowing out of this, we're going to take a short amount of time to go through a series on spiritual disciplines. We're going to look at what are the spiritual disciplines that the Bible teaches us. How can we engage in those things? What might that look like? How how do I troubleshoot? I feel like I don't know how to spend more than five minutes in prayer. What do you pray about? How do you keep from running out of ideas? Some of these common struggles that we have, we're going to talk about those. But the point here is that no one ever became godly by just wanting to be godly. That's not how it works. It takes discipline. If you look ahead in verse 10, the words that... The Lord provides for us are helpful. He says, for to this end we toil and strive. If we want to see the fruit of godliness, we must toil and strive for it. So to take full advantage of the Greek word here, imagine going to the gym. You desire, for whatever reason, I don't know why you would desire this, but you want to be a national level weightlifter. I want to go in and I want to compete and I want to just be, I'll tell you... That's never going to happen for me, obviously. But let's just say that's my desire. I want to be a national level weightlifter. You may have the strongest desire of anyone in the gym, 
But that desire isn't going to strengthen you to lift weights one single bit. What's going to strengthen you to be able to lift the weights? Your body needs two things. One, a healthy diet. Number two, rigorous discipline. That's what it is. I want to see results. What do I need to do? Any physical trainer will tell you. Diet, exercise. It's that simple, but it's also that difficult. Why is it so difficult? I don't want to diet. It's too hard. If you're honest, okay, well, I, I can diet. Okay, rigorous discipline. I don't want to do that workout. Why? It's too hard. We don't want to do it. It's difficult. Christians must discipline themselves with God's word if they want to see the fruit of godliness in their life. But the hard fact is that a lot of us don't. Why? Well, Garrett, it's hard to find the time. It's a rare commodity. Well, Garrett, I I just have a hard time understanding the Bible sometimes. Garrett, it's it's hard for me to read. I, I don't have a desire to read. I'm not a reader. I have a weird work schedule, so it's hard for me to maintain any kind of consistency. I have to work harder at reading the Bible and understanding it than other people do. It's difficult. You know what all of these have in common? The word hard. It's hard to find time. It's hard to understand. It's hard for me to read. Thinking back to our gym example. When you go to the gym with this desire to be this weightlifter, I said that the desire does nothing to develop your body. It helps your mind. But notice the desire is not for the training. I don't desire to lift weights at all. Me personally, no desire to do that. But if I desire the outcome of lifting weights enough, I will endure the hard, rigorous discipline to get what I really desire. The desire is for the end result. And what happens is, as you develop your body, you will start to love the discipline. I ran a 5K once. Only once. I plan on only ever running one once. God's probably going to make me run several again just because I said that. After running this 5K, I talked to someone who said, so what would you think? And what they were looking for is they wanted to know that I catch the bug, which blows me away. But why is running, why is it like a bug that you catch and you want to run? But anyway, he said, so like, how was it? I made it through. He's like, okay, so now you want to work up to the half marathon? No. Why would I want to do that? He was like, if you tried it, you would love it. You're crazy. You've literally lost your mind. He's like, I'm telling you. There's something called a runner's high, and you start running, and your body is breaking down, and it's telling you stop, 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 but your willpower kicks in. You say, no, I'm going to keep going, and he said eventually you reach this place where you're running, and something happens, and suddenly, though your body was feeling that, you just feel good, and you're just going. And and if you talk to runners, they will tell you something to this effect. I still don't know if I believe it. And I'm not going to test that theory, but I've heard it from so many people who run. Same thing with people who go to the gym. My brother, he would go to the gym and work out. He is much bigger than I am, obviously. And so I'm like, ah, I just don't want to. He's like, if you did it enough, you would start to love it. 
I haven't tested those, but I'll tell you what I have tested is discipline in this. And guess what? It may be hard, but the more you do this, the more you will love it. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. That's why the psalmist described this as being sweeter than honey and more valuable than gold. Because he pours over it all the time. And the more you read through it, you see all these weird interconnections. And you just think, this is amazing. I was talking to someone in my office the other day. Teach a Sunday school here at this church. Explained, you know what? When I study God's word to teach it, it's different than just reading it. When you're studying it to teach, you notice all these little connections between the, And it just comes alive. You may not love the discipline now. It's hard. It is hard. You will learn to love the discipline. When you see the fruit coming from that, you will learn to love it. It is so good. The desire we have is for godliness. So we're willing to endure the hard discipline. And at the end of the day, if we're honest, I think we all have room in our schedule to be disciplined. At something. In fact, most of us are. Most of us are very disciplined at at least something. We discipline ourselves for cleanliness. I want to be clean. So I'm going to discipline myself and shower on a regular basis and brush my teeth. We discipline ourselves for financial success. I'm going to budget my money so that I don't spend over. We discipline ourselves for sports. I'm going to go and practice. We discipline ourselves for catching our favorite shows on Netflix. We know exactly when it comes out, and we will be there at exactly the time to catch the episode. And if something else comes up, guess what we're going to do? We're going to cancel that so that we can make this. We discipline ourselves for watching certain games. So-and-so is playing so-and-so in football. Can't miss that one no matter what. We will block out time and reschedule and go without things for any number of things. Except for this. Godliness takes discipline. If you want to be a godly person, I think we all want that. I do. I I genuinely think that all of us wants that. I want to be godly. It's going to take discipline for that to happen. Paul puts it in perspective when he says bodily training is of some value. Godliness is a value in every way. And in all of our other pursuits, there's value there. Financial success and cleanliness, those things have value. But godliness has value now And it has value when everything else is gone. So let's discipline ourselves for godliness. Verses 9 and 10. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. 
So why do we discipline ourselves for godliness? Why do we toil and strive after a proper diet and proper digestion of the word and following after what we absorb? Because we have our hope set on the living God. We have our hope set on God, so we discipline ourselves. I think the inverse of this typically holds true as well. We don't discipline ourselves because we don't have our hope set on the living God. And I'll tell you, for me, that's convicting. We discipline ourselves because we have hope in God. Paul says that this God is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. There's a difference between Jesus being the savior in general and Jesus being your specific savior. Jesus is the savior of all people, whether they accept him or not. God is God, period. Whether or not you pledge your allegiance to him doesn't matter. God is God. In the same way, Jesus is savior, period. But he is especially the savior of those people who believe upon him. They can claim him as savior in a way that other people can't. He's not going to save all people, but he is still the savior of all people. Who does he save? Those who believe. For this group of people, Jesus is a different type of savior. He's theoretically the savior for everybody. But his salvation is experienced by those who believe. So as we believe upon Jesus, we set our hope on him. And as we set our hope on him, we desire him. And as we desire him, we discipline ourselves to be like him. And as we discipline ourselves to be like him, our toil and our striving fueled by and focused upon the perfect true word of God produces the coveted fruit of godliness, which aids us as we live for Christ both now and forever. Pray for us. God, we pray that you would give us the strength that we need to strengthen our weak knees and to discipline ourselves for godliness. Father, would you strengthen us so that we might strive and toil after you? Would you set our hope upon you and our gaze upon you, fix our desires upon you, so that you occupy our thoughts, you determine and dictate what our goals are and what our priorities are? Create a hunger in us. Cause our souls to thirst after you and to pant after you. God, we want to be godly. And we understand that that means that we must discipline ourselves. But we are weak and we need you to strengthen us for that discipline. Would you protect us from any destructive speculation about you. Protect us from these things that try to take the place of your word and that tell us that we can discipline ourselves easier if we go this route with this material. Protect us from those things. We know that it's going to take hard work. We're ready for that. Would you protect us from wanting to take the easy way out 
and risk absorbing something that's going to be poisonous to our health? Would you make us into a godly church who has our hopes set on you, Jesus, our Savior? We love you. We thank you that you came and died for us to redeem us from all ungodliness, to create us in your image. Father, to you we give all honor, praise, and glory now and forever. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.